How can we change behavior or change beliefs if our ability to create new neural networks is compromised? We need to put out the fire in your brain and get your neural tissues back online so we can actually start start changing things. More so, each of us has to determine for ourselves what does mental health mean to us? Hey there, welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant with a master's degree in nutrition. What's up? And I'm Lauren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and Czech movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. Our mission is to provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition, and support your body's natural healing abilities. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Hello, and welcome to episode 183 of the Biohacker Waves. I am Lauren tuning in to you from Philadelphia, and I'm joined by my sister Renee. Hello. In her home. Yes. Las Vegas. In Vegas. <laughs> you are in Eagles country right now. Woohoo. I am gearing up for the Super Bowl. It's going to get nuts here over the weekend. But yeah, our audience timing. will be hearing this after the Super Bowl, after we already know the results. Yes. If you're listening, you already know the winner. You can see into the future. <laughs> uh, I'm a little bit nervous. A little bit nervous about what's going to happen in the city this weekend. But um yeah, if they it's lose right now, if they lose, <laughs> you might want to get out of there. <laughs> True. Well, we're leaving the following morning. I will. I will have escaped by the time you hear this episode. So, okay. Happy to be here today. We have an amazing guest for you today. Our dear friend Brendan Vermeyer. So, before we get into all the magic of Brendan, I have to ask you your pop question of the day, Renee. Right? It's my turn. Yeah, go for it. Okay. What was your glucose response to your breakfast this morning? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know because I had to take my CGM off. Oh, okay. What was your glucose response to your breakfast two days ago? When did you have it in for breakfast? I had to take it off on Sunday. I don't, for some reason, my sensor went bad like two days before I was done with it. It happens. It happens all the time. They get tired. Yeah. I was telling you, I think it had, maybe it's possible it had something to do with, I was doing tricep extensions at the gym and the meter, it kind of, or the monitor felt a little weird when I was doing that exercise. And then within 24 hours, I started getting all these wacky readings and you were like, yeah, there's something wrong. So mm. yeah. Anyways. Interesting. You intuitively felt that because I couldn't really tell you what I, I didn't understand what you were feeling, but you were like, I'm pretty sure this is not right. Yeah. Glucose at 45 in the middle of the afternoon, kind of a weird For thing. hours. Yeah. For hours. Unlikely. Yeah. Unlikely. Yeah. So I would say, so the last one I had in the morning, what did I have that day? I think I had scrambled eggs and bacon and my glucose only went up to like 98 after mm. that. Keto breakfast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had some good protein in there, but yeah, it was a good one. Tea. Yeah, it was All a right, nice excellent. little rolling hill that morning. How about you? What was your last reading? Was it this morning? Do you have it on now? Oh, no, I don't. I'm not wearing a CGM right now. So that's why oh, I'm okay. putting you on the spot because you don't test quite as often. So I was really excited to watch your trends and hear what you've learned. You had a, a funny response to a daily harvest flatbread. Can I say that on air? I think so. That's okay. Yeah, that darn cassava root flour. Oof. 
it was definitely the worst glucose I have ever seen in my life ever. Mm, and it was, yeah. so it was a cassava root flour base. And then I had sweet potatoes, kale, a couple other veggies on top, peppers, peppers on top. Yeah. No good. No good. Yeah. I guess raise your hand if you've been victim to cassava flour before. <laughs> it's those, The gluten-free alternatives can be really, really tricky. You got to read the ingredients. And I mean, I'm a big fan of daily harvest. We both are. And I don't think that's always the response, but um, yeah, the gluten-free alternatives can actually be worse sometimes. So got to pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I did a post saying, you, you know, quote unquote, healthy food because you would think, oh, it's a gluten-free option. It's got lots of veggies. I think the, you know, the standard um, there would be like, oh, that's a healthy option, but we could do a yeah. whole episode about that. <laughs> I know. The question is, is it healthy for you? <laughs> right. Okay. Well, we could talk about glucose forever and ever, but we have to get to this episode because it is just so fantastic. We have brought Brendan Vermeyer back on the show. We interviewed him in early 2021. So almost two years exactly to the date, and we've been uh, wanting to get him on sooner. So just super excited to bring him back on because he is doing some amazing things in the mental health space. So he has not only created the mental map, which is a blood chemistry test, it's lab work, biochemistry, but he also has created a practitioner course called the Functional Mental Health Practitioner Course. That is a mouthful. I will talk through each of those, but... He is an amazing researcher and educator, and I am very proud to call him my teacher and mentor and our friend, and we could chat with him for just hours, but of course, we had to limit it to just under an hour and a half for you. So if you want to have him back on, you know, we are we are taking requests as always. Yeah, I think we're going to have to have him back on, and I just absolutely love this episode. I always learn so much from him, and I've learned a lot from you of what you have learned from him. So as a byproduct, that's been really awesome to watch. And I personally really want to do the test and just see what comes up for myself. So I think it's a really amazing opportunity for people, especially as mental health becomes more and more of not only I would say like a hot topic, but a very important and essential topic. So mm -hmm. yeah, I won't share too much. I think uh, we have a great episode for you today. Yeah, I did want to introduce the mental map just a little bit more and then the course a little bit more so you can go into the podcast with an understanding of what he's doing. So he designed the mental map. This is the blood test, which tests your biochemistry or biomarkers, which could be indicative of mental illness, mental health dysfunction, whatever you want to label it. But the mental map is an acronym for microglial activation profile. Such a cool name. It is the most comprehensive and reliable test for neuroinflammation, for microglial activation and depressed neuroplasticity, which is maybe a buzzword you've heard. We want neuroplasticity. This is the ability of our, our brains to become plastic and to change. So we're not just victim to the aging process. We can actually do things that affect uh, better brain health, cognition, and prevent neurodegenerative conditions such as Alzheimer's. So if your doctor has told you that your blood work looks normal, but you suffer, with persistent nagging symptoms, a lot of us have been there. The mental map can help you assess root physiology and really elucidate the cause of your symptoms. Um, how Brendan came into this, if you did not hear our previous interview, he was diagnosed with two mental illnesses by the age of 21. So he is experienced. He knows what this feels like. And um, his diagnoses were really largely based off of subjective symptomatology. There wasn't any objective data to qualify this. And then he was treated off a very reductionistic clinical model, which if you have been the victim of, you know, gaslighting or being told that you're 
symptoms are normal or your lab testing is normal. This is not doing a lot for our healing. So he has created a solution that can give us more answers, more opportunities for optimizing our our lifestyle and our well-being. Alternatively, the certificate program, the FMHP, the Functional Mental Health Practitioner Certificate Program, which I am a part of, I'm in class one and I'm just super excited to be an early adopter. Uh, this program is for certified and or licensed health professionals. So there are psychologists, doctors, health coaches. If you have any background in biochemistry, health coaching, nutrition, mental health, anything in that arena, we're learning about root cause approach to mental health. So using the mental map, but also using functional intervention strategies like lifestyle, behavioral stuff. And then how do we layer in the exercise, the supplemental modalities like nutraceuticals, supplements, and when and where drugs and medications could be useful. So the course is using the mental map to help the coaching process. So you can kind of go into this interview with that in the back of your mind. And so if this is something that resonates with you, if this is something you want to bring into your coaching practice, or maybe this is all new to you, but you're just super inspired to be a part of this mental wellness or mental health movement, which I think we need lots of in this day and age, um, please join us and send us questions. If you have any follow-up questions or want to know more about the program, I'm happy to share endlessly. Anything else you want to add, Renee? No, that's a great, great uh, overview before we jump in. Okay. And quickly, let me give you his bio in case you did not hear a uh, prior interview, though that one was really, really good. So please go back and hear that as well. Brendan, here he is, mental and metabolic health scientist and researcher, functional medicine educator, writer, and speaker. He is a board-certified holistic health practitioner, master nutrition coach, master personal trainer, USAW sports performance coach, and CrossFit trainer. He began his career as a personal trainer and nutrition coach at the age of 18 after disappointingly being medically discharged from the United States Navy SEAL training pipeline due to an injury. After being exposed to the power of functional lab testing and the start of his career, he began intensely pursuing that as a career path, which has led him to be widely regarded as one of the top leading experts in metabolic health and functional education. He's the proud owner and founder of the Metabolic Solutions Institute for Functional Health and Fitness Practitioners. When he's not educating doctors, practitioners, professionals, helping clients overcome their most severe health struggles or producing cutting-edge scientific education, Brendan enjoys all things fitness and is probably working out. He also enjoys anything in nature and any activities that expand his heart, mind, and soul. Amazing. He has a beautiful soul. All right, let's jump in. Brendan, welcome back to the podcast. We are so thrilled to have you here today. How are you doing? I'm good. It's good to see you both. I've literally been looking forward to this for as long as we've had it scheduled. And um, I haven't been doing as many podcasts, but I was super thrilled to have the opportunity and uh, very excited to have another really amazing conversation with you both. Yes. Well, we're so honored that you chose us to come back. (laughs) Very excited. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, the, it was one of our favorite interviews of all time. I hope I can say that without checking in with Renee, but I think we would agree on that. <laughs> and um, we're really excited to take a step deeper into the topic of mental health. We chatted in early 2020, kind of feels like yesterday, also 2021. Yeah, two years ago. Two years ago. Yeah. Um, and at that time, it felt like mental health could not be more topical and relevant, but it seems to be increasingly so. <laughs> Uh, just an, an insanely important topic to talk about. And there's so many places that we could jump in today, but I feel 
what's really important is to highlight the course that you have created, the Functional Mental Health Practitioner course, which I am very honored to be in class one. And uh, you are just such an amazing resource for mental and metabolic health. You are an amazing researcher and educator. And uh, something that really stuck out to me in the beginning of the course, and we've I think barely scratched the surface. Is that right? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Something you said very early on is that we all have our own definitions of mental health, which is interesting. When you think about what is mental health, we could all sit here kind of similar to biohacking. We could all come up with our own definitions. There's probably many, many, many. My question is, are we focusing more on what mental illness is rather than what mental health is? So I would love to drop in and get your definition of what it means to be mentally healthy. Yeah, I think that's a great starting point. And I'm really, really appreciative to be back. I have so much respect for the work that you two are doing. And so this is definitely like a, you know, colleague to colleague, friend to friend kind of conversation, which is way more rewarding. And it's cool that you wanted to start there because I was literally just kind of thinking about some of that along those lines. Because in a lot of ways, I don't feel like we can even really have an effective, constructive conversation about mental illness or then getting lost in the weeds on all the cool, like rabbit hole sciencey subjects. Because I think we all have to define for ourselves, like, what does mental health mean to us, right? And how does that contrast from mental illness? Because there's obviously the conventional psychiatric model, which, you know, has some things it's good at and other things it's really not very good at. Uh, And overall, I think it's highly dysfunctional and just not at all equipped to handle the current mental health crisis and all the factors that are contributing to the mental health crisis. But I think like what keeps me motivated and gets me out of bed is just like, what, what is mental health in general? That's so subjective. And especially, you know, I, I, I kind of keep tabs on what's going on in Instagramville and, you know, what's trendy, what, what ideas, what concepts are people latching onto or associating with or identifying with? And I think there's a lot of good stuff on social media. Don't get me wrong. I think there's a lot of brilliant people sharing new thoughts, new paradigms, new perspectives. But I also, to some degree, feel like the human experience is just getting like dissected and mutilated uh, on on the internet, and especially like human psychology and kind of what used to just be self help, and now it's this whole kind of self healing movement. And a lot of it's very psychological based. And I think that's great. But psychology can be so subjective. And I've always been a little bit more focused on what physiological factors are shaping our psychological experience. And I feel like that's a big missing piece of the conversation, because especially when you're getting into like the epidemiology or statistics of mental health in America with Alzheimer's as the sixth leading cause of death for Americans or suicide being the second leading cause of death for ages like 10 to 34, you know, both of those being somewhere on the sort of uh, mental illness, neurodegenerative, neuroinflammatory phenotype kind of spectrum. I think there's this whole conversation we're not having about at more of a physiological biochemical level, why is everybody sort of so dissociated and trying to create all these new psychological narratives to explain what they're experiencing, right? Because you know, we could we could constantly make up these new narratives that are soothing and it gives us a self-indulgent explanation of why our human experience is feeling the way it's feeling. But that's just so subjective. And no matter how many new narratives and new paradigms, but is it actually really fixing the problem? Right. And so I mean that's where I, I love to bring, you know, objectivity to it with obviously lab testing 
And if we have somebody that is truly like mentally unstable or maybe has been diagnosed when, with some sort of mental health disorder or neurodevelopmental disorder or neurodegenerative disorder, like what's really going on there physiologically, biochemically? Because I just feel like, especially in America, American sociology is feeling more and more just psychotic and self-indulgent and just not stable in general. And we just, we see this screaming at us through media and social media. And I just feel like there's a lot more going on here that, that we're not really having conversations about, even when like the scientific literature or like what big pharma is pushing down the pharma pipeline for here's how we're going to combat the mental health crisis. And we're all just kind of freaking out psychologically and creating these narratives and all these beautiful, eloquent self-help sort of narratives. But is that helping? Right. Because it just seems like it's kind of getting worse and worse. And the data reflects that. So anyways, to kind of wrap up that like, you know, soapbox speech, you know, we have to kind of clearly define what what is mental illness. And, and then more so each of us has to determine for ourselves what does mental health mean to us? My version of mental health for me might be totally different than than somebody else. So there's that subjectivity to it. And if somebody's struggling with their mental health, why is that? You know, is it psychological in origin? Is it physiological? Is it maybe some, you know, entanglement of all the above, right? So it's just things that have to be addressed and sort of compartmentalized to to get some clarity. Yeah, I never really thought about what my definition would be of mental health. Um, I'm going to have to brainstorm on this later. I think I maybe have thought like mental health is kind of like the absence of a diagnosis or illness, but I don't know. That's an interesting thing to think about. Curious with the physiological versus psychological, do you think you could put any kind of number on that scale or is it really so different for some people? It's half that, half that. Sometimes you have to look at psych- psychology before physiology or vice versa. Yeah. You know, it's crazy because it's not like I have, you know, all the answers or like, I'm just a dude on my own life journey. You, you, know? you have a lot of answers though. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think I have a few things figured out, <laughs> but like, you know, using, I, I always just use myself as a case study. Cause it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm just one of, you know, 8 billion people on this planet trying to find my way through the human experience. And you know, navigating the human condition and there's no amount of instant gratification or external validation that can fully cure the human condition. You know, it it starts opening up all these much more esoteric conversations around what's the, why are we here? You know, it it can become a very spiritual conversation very, very quickly of like, what's your purpose? Why Why are you here? You know, what beliefs do you subscribe to of you know, nihilism, nothing matters. Like we're basically just a a parasitic species on this planet, dysbiotically growing out of control and, you know, killing the planet and ourselves. Like that's one belief system, right? But then all the while, you know, we all have this beautiful opportunity every single day that, oh, I woke up again. So what am I going to do with it? Right? How am I going to try to make the world a little bit better than than it was yesterday? How am I going to show up for the one life that I'm given. It's like the human experience is so beyond our comprehension. We can't psych like we are not psychologically or physiologically equipped to be able to really understand the experience that we're experiencing in real time. Right. So it just gets so trippy. And so like with me, you know, as once upon a time, you know, diagnosed ADHD and major depressive disorder. Does that mean, you know, these are lifelong conditions that I will always have. But then again, if I'm 
currently not really symptomatic. Does that mean I cured myself? Uh, but then again, with like sort of the genetic predisposition that, well, I mean, genetic testing and all these cool things. Okay. I have genetic characteristics that predispose me to certain psychological and physiological, you know, patterns and, and sort of susceptibilities because even like, I will just candidly say, I think my mental health probably within the past five months dipped to a lower point than it's been in, in a really long time. Like probably since. I was going through my big mental health crisis and my suicide attempt and, you know, my dark days, I dipped like pretty low this, this past like five months. And that was really reflective for me. Cause like, I'm the mental health guy. Like, this is what I do. Like I should have it all figured out. Right. And so I think people are kind of approaching it wrong, to be honest, you know, it, it's an ongoing practice and it's so much more than just that psychiatric drug, or I'm going to do a little bit of breath work and whatever. Uh, it's really like navigating your way through life, but with the psychology physiology thing, you know, the little brain yin yang that I have on my Instagram, my little logo thing, like that's what that really is supposed to represent is like, well, what makes mental health so kind of fascinating and ambiguous is like, well, it's always going to be this, this combination of psychology and physiology, you know, your physiology directly impacts your psychology and your psychology directly impacts your physiology. So it makes it really hard because then if you're struggling, you know, is it more psychological in origin or nature or is it physiological or, or a little bit of both? And that's kind of what got me on my path is like back when I was like 19 to 21 and really struggling with more severe mental health symptoms. I didn't, you know, sure, we all have room for opportunity with growth and evolution and how we see ourselves and the world around us and our place in the world in the universe. But I never really felt like I had more of like an outlook or attitude problem. It felt very physical for me. You know, anybody that's experienced like true depression, uh, I always describe it as like if you had a, a big backpack that's like full of jagged rocks that, you know, it's heavy, the straps are cutting into your traps and, you know, the rocks are kind of poking in your back and jostling as you're hiking up the mountain that is life. Uh, meanwhile, it's like you have headphones on that muffle, you can't hear right. And everything sounds very like self-defeating and like you suck, life is meaningless. And then you have like these dark, thick glasses on, so you can't really see it's dark. It's, you know, very bleak. That's kind of what depression, you know, severe depression sort of feels like all the while you have no energy, no motivation, no sense of purpose or, or confidence or anything good. Right. And I mean, I'll just kind of jump to it where there's a difference between maybe somebody that is like metabolically, physiologically stable, and they're just trying to navigate the human experience on an esoteric plane. That's a very different thing than somebody that is physiologically compromised. And that's putting them into this dark, unstable place that that can't be compared, right? And so, I mean, this is where like, if we take and this might be a segue of like standard American metabolism, insulin resistant, fatty liver, dysbiotic leaky gut, malnourished yet overfed, overly fat, more pro-inflammatory, pro-oxidative pathways being activated, epigenetics just on full blast, right? Gee, I mean, navigating the human experience is going to probably be that much suckier when you're physiologically compromised, right? So especially I can't really speak for the rest of the world so much, 
but you look at the average level of metabolic, physiological, biochemical health of Americans, and it, it's trash. Like it's, it's just so bad. And we're not talking about it. And obviously with what's going on with, you know, COVID and vaccine propaganda and all this stuff, like it's so distracting and it's, we're not at all having the conversations we need to be having. And so, I mean, we can just directly say, like, I would argue the major driver of mental health struggles in America is, is the metabolic struggle. It's the metabolic dysfunction and illness that's presenting as a sociological, psychological shit show. <laughs> mm, yeah. And the biggest missed opportunity, perhaps. You yeah. Know, I, the puzzle just gets bigger and bigger every time I speak to you and hear you talk and your soapboxes are my favorite, just for the record. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad somebody likes them. <laughs> yeah, I just they drive that, me crazy. <laughs> no, they keep me going. They keep me going. Yeah, I just think the biggest gap and the biggest opportunity really is looking objectively and diagnostically at these metabolic factors because you're not going to find that in the self-help aisle at the library for anyone that's looking at the library or the bookstore. And, you know, you mentioned this, if someone, if your brain is on fire and that's not urban dictionary, like fire, we're talking about neuroinflammation. If you really are in a metabolically ill state, uh, there's no amount of meaning making or happiness, the pursuit of happiness that can get you out of that inflammatory state. So that's what you do amazingly well. And I know that we could go down so many rabbit holes of spirituality. You have such an amazing grasp on that, but with the mental map test that you created and this FMHP course that you created, there's so much about metabolic health that people are not talking about. And I think it goes even far, far beyond what functional medicine practitioners are talking about, because we're doing all these fancy testing, stool testing, genetic testing, looking at biomarkers that are black and white. And you are always bringing us back to there is nuance. There is so much nuance. Why is this happening? You said at the very beginning of the podcast, we have to get to the root of why, and not just why we're not metabolically and mentally healthy, but why is our physiology responding in a particular way? So can we talk a little bit more about lab testing and how you use that? Um, maybe we could just start with blood chemistry, something that's insanely valuable and a lot of functional medicine practitioners are maybe poo-pooing it a little bit these days, or, you know, the average client, patient, consumer, a lot of people don't even have these lab tests. Clients come to me, you ask, when was the last time you got your blood drawn? No, no, a couple of years ago. <laughs> or they have it and they say, oh, there was nothing on there. My doctor said it was all normal. I'm like, yeah, I still that. need you to send that to me. That. So tell us why the blood chemistry is so valuable. All right, biohackers. I know you probably already know that sleep is one of the most powerful factors to upgrading your health. We know that great sleep can upgrade you on virtually every level. It can optimize body fat, muscle mass, your mood, brain function, and countless other ways. However, there is a popular sleep supplement on the market, melatonin, which is often overused and can be problematic because the body can adapt to it and then you need to take more and more and it becomes less and less effective. So melatonin has its place, but you want to make sure you know what you're doing if you're going to take it. So there is a much better approach. You can actually feed your body the natural melatonin building blocks and what we call the transformers or the cofactors that your body needs to naturally produce melatonin. And thanks to a brand new sleep formula, 
formula developed by our friends over at Bioptimizers, you can experience the best sleep ever. After years of trial and error and sleep tracking, they have finally launched a new groundbreaking sleep formula called Sleep Breakthrough. And this is a delicious sleep drink. Lauren and I love it so much before bed. And it actually supports your natural melatonin production and relaxation without creating a dependency. So you can actually take it more often and still have the best night's sleep on demand. We find that it helps you fall asleep faster, you stay asleep throughout the night, and it even helps you get the right amounts of REM and deep sleep, so really optimizing that sleep efficiency. And best of all, you'll wake up feeling rested and rejuvenated, not groggy like some of the sleep supplements can do on the market, so that's a great benefit as well. And guess what? They are giving all of our listeners an exclusive offer, so if you head to sleepbreakthrough.com slash biohackerbabes, you can use promo code biohackerbabes10, that'll get you 10% off. And they are giving away special gifts for any purchase over $20. That is a limited time offer, but for now, make sure you definitely check out sleepbreakthrough.com slash biohackerbabes. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, it's, you know, it's wild because I, I like the way we started the conversation, kind of that psychological, esoteric, sort of rhetorical, just getting people thinking, because I think there's too many people, at least through my platform and my business model with what I put out, I get way too much hey, like I want to do this mental map because you're going to be able to identify what is the root cause, recommend some supplements, poof, that root cause goes away. And then like rainbows and butterflies for the rest of my life. Right. Yeah. And then of course I have to like reverse engineer of like, well, like that, you know, that's like 10% of the whole thing, but like, there's a lot more to it. And, you know, sense of purpose or sense of why, or, or what you said, I see what you did there with like the, the eudaimonia, right? Like we see through psychological research that part of what humans biologically need to feel a sense of happiness and place in the universe is meaning making in the face of adversity and trauma. Like we evolved struggling to survive, right? You know, and, and we look at like how cush the human experience is now Just stay in your little cubicle and in your little Petri dish apartment and watch your Amazon and Netflix and have food delivered to you. It's so cush, you know, and I was on a uh, what was her name? I think her name's Alex, like low tox life down in Australia. And I was kind of talking about some of this with her like last year. And I was talking about that of like, so how are we going to feel mentally if we're not challenged with that struggle to survive sort of thing? And she actually, I, <laughs> I was kind of jealous. She's like, oh man. So she listened to what I said. And then she threw back. She's like, so, you know, because, um, because we're no longer struggling to survive, ironically, we're struggling to live. And I was like, oh, God, <laughs> you know, it was so good. Um, but but that's kind of the question yeah. is like, if the human species isn't really struggling and striving just to make it through another day and to survive, then what do we do? We're just sitting around contemplating our own existence and sentience. Like, what do we do with ourselves? Let me hyper analyze every single personality trade and create like some self-indulgent narrative as to why that's okay. And everybody should fit into my reality. Right. It's yes. so weird. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's kind of part of where, you know, my, my friend and former client, Dr. Nicole Lepera with all the work that, you know, she's doing in holistic psychology. And I think all that sort of like introspective, you know, how to do the work stuff, like that's great. But if you're physiologically compromised, how are you really going to make any progress there? And so kind of tying into the neuroinflammation and mental map and FMHP and all that, that's kind of a big part of, you know, what I'm trying to bring to the table of like, 
first off, your your lab testing is more than anything reflective of your day-to-day behaviors, right? Like your metabolism, your physique, and therefore the biomarkers reflective of your metabolic functioning, that's reflective of what you choose to do on a day-to-day basis, how you're choosing to live your life, how you're choosing to sleep or stress or eat or whatever. Like that's what that's really reflective of. So why would we just try to throw pills at it to change it? Like, no, if we really want to change your physiology as reflected in your biomarkers, we have to change your behavior. To change your behavior, we have to change your belief systems, your knowledge base, which means changing your neural networks at a neurophysiological tissue level, right? We have to quite literally break down through synaptic trimming and pruning to break down neural networks that are associated with beliefs and knowledge that isn't serving you well, you know, and then we have to build new neural networks, new skills, new knowledge associated with new behaviors. That's more in alignment with the outcome that you're trying to get. And then all the while, you know, most Americans do have this sort of meta low chronic neuroinflammation, you know, their brain is cooking, right? What's neuro neurodevelopmental issues. Like it's primarily like a neuroinflammatory insult early in life, causing like a miswiring of the brain. You know, what's neurodegeneration? It's, well, your brain has been cooking for too long and now it's degenerating rapidly, right? What is mental illness? It's like, well, your brain is on fire and your neurotransmitters are dysregulated. Your neuroplasticity is compromised. So the point I'm getting at, if, you know, if you think about your brain as like a forest and the forest is on fire, okay, the forest is not thriving. You know, neuroplasticity and neurogenesis is that, you know, the trees, the plants, the foliage, it's all just thriving and growing and proliferating versus a out of control forest fire. It's all just burning down. So it's like, how can we change behavior or change beliefs if our ability to create new neural networks and new skills and new beliefs is compromised, right? So in the presence of neuroinflammation, I, I don't feel like we can really make progress spiritually or psychologically. It's no longer a matter of like outlook or attitude or perspective or psychology. It's it's a conversation about we need to put out the fire in your brain and get your neural tissues back online so we can actually start start changing things. And so, you know, the mental map was a proprietary, it, it started as a research panel, actually. I, I designed a a panel for the sake of advancing, you know, the clinical research of what biomarkers are going to be most relevant for mental illness across the spectrum of neurodevelopment, neurodegeneration, mental illness, kind of right in the middle. And our conventional psychiatry system doesn't use lab testing like at all, right? It's just subjective of like, all right, you're bipolar with a dose of anxiety or you're schizophrenic with a dose of, you know, whatever, you know, here's the the drug and here's the SNRI or benzo or whatever. And I just like, I like objectivity. You know, because when we can see on a piece of paper with clinically validated, really rigorously researched biomarkers, like, oh, well, you have rampant levels of inflammation, oxidative stress or nutrient insufficiencies or methylation issues or whatever is going on. First off, it gives us something tangible that we can track over the course of time to see like, okay, as we apply some sort of intervention, whether it's IV ketamine or tripping on ayahuasca in a rainforest or doing vagus nerve stimulation like whatever it is, is it working? Like, are we seeing, you know, the objective biomarkers getting better and moving in the right direction? Literally right before this call, I was consulting with a new client who 
was like the most fascinating case I've seen yet with the mental map where, you know, this guy is literally bedridden, you know, debilitating fatigue, depression, anxiety, panic, suicidal ideation. He's not living. I mean, it's, it's an absolutely horrible situation. And of course, you know, they're bouncing around trying to get answers and doing all the things. Nothing's working. Right. Whereas then, you know, they run my test and he had some of the most extreme elevations I've I've ever seen using my own test. And to be able to show them like this isn't like in your head, this isn't just like, oh, gosh, just got to throw the right drug out. It's like there's no way that anybody with biomarkers like this could possibly function or feel good like this explains it all. And now we have something objective that we can track to make sure we're improving, you know, the functionality of the systems that are, you know, severely compromised here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's so powerful. Yeah. As a biohacker, I mean, anything that we can track, we can potentially hack. So I think that's amazing that you've created a test that we can use for that. I'm curious with him, you know, with a test like that, with so many biomarkers out of range, like where do you start? Do you start with lifestyle factors, supplements? What do you do there? All the above. Like I, I'm the type of guy, I'm a little bit, um, you know, I look at it as my role to educate and empower And so I'm pretty candid with, okay, well, we know where you're standing physiologically and biochemically. We have objective data to quantify that and track that. So then it's more, you know, with like behavior modification is going to be all about compliance and compliance is going to be heavily influenced by what resonates with them, right? You know, if you have somebody that they have a lot of resistance towards working out and you're just trying to like push workout and fitness as the cure all or something, it has to resonate with them. So I always like to kind of give them that framework and sort of that playground of like, you can explore and, you know, do whatever intervention like resonates with you. We'll see if it works or not. You know, are your symptoms getting better? Is your perceived quality of life getting better? Are the biomarkers moving in the right direction? If not, I'm going to advise that you change your approach, right? So I always kind of use that almost like jokingly of like, if you want to go to, you know, Costa Rica and trip on psychedelics and see if that helps. Great. Like go do that. Like we'll see, you know, we'll see if it it helps or not, but I am a big fan of just a more holistic, you know, approach in general. Like, yeah, we want to be primarily changing, you know, environmental input signals, lifestyle input signals, using supplements, you know, strategically, therapeutically in a very targeted, you know, fashion. Of course they can, you know, go do uh, pharmaceuticals with a doctor if they want. I'm just all about what's going to be realistic, what's going to be efficacious and effective, what resonates with them. Um, and that's really up to them, right? Like they they have to decide and, and any good practitioner, doctor or coach should be, you know, kind of co-creating, you know, that that intervention plan with the the client or patient. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. whatever they're going to do, 80, at least 80% of the time is what's really going to make the difference. So I agree mm-hmm. as a coach and practitioner, you have to say, you know, okay, you're really not going to give up that one thing, but we need to do these eight things instead. If you're, if that's yeah. like not, not a negotiable, negotiable item or something like that. Sure. Um, yeah. So yeah. I appreciate that kind of meeting the client where they are. Well, and also for... giving them the responsibility to make some decisions on their own. Cause that's already starts feeding into the meaning making while you're improving behaviors. Absolutely. And certainly I, I should add that you know, depending on like which biomarkers are out of range, that's going to shift the priority a little bit, right? Like if you have a, you know, a homocysteine of 20 or a C-reactive protein of 15 or something, that's going to shift of like, all right, 
you know, like bringing down the inflammation and any contributing causes of the inflammation becomes really high priority of, or, you know, if it's more of like a methylation issue or a nutrient status issue or whatever it is. So, you know, to some degree too, depending on which biomarkers, which systems are dysfunctional, that helps us kind of hone in. Cause I think depending on like how compromised they are too, like we got to get them feeling better, you know, getting them feeling better is, is step one. And that's where like intelligent allopathy comes in of, you know, maybe we need to overhaul everything about their like diet and exercise and lifestyle. But like when you're bedridden with debilitating fatigue and depression and, and suicidal ideation or whatever, it's like, first things first, you got to get somebody like stable and, and feeling good enough. So that's kind of where like passive care versus active care, right? Passive care is done to you. Active care is what you do for yourself. But if somebody's too compromised, like they can't really do anything for themselves. They have to you know, just maybe take some pills or get some different therapies and stuff until they're built up enough that now we can actually start making some more behavioral modifications. Mm, right. Yeah. Feeling better sooner than later would be quite yeah. motivating, I would think. Yeah. But yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so when we're looking at biomarkers, you know, in the functional health space, functional nutrition, functional medicine, whatever you want to say, uh, you know, there's this whole root cause approach. We're looking at the root cause. We're looking at what, what started this. We'll, how do we get from A to B? But I find that we're still thinking quite linearly where we see an inflammatory marker or any biomarker that would be technically out of range. And practitioners are still saying, oh, well, I have a solution for that. Take this nutraceutical, take this supplement, eat this food. And it's very one plus one equals two. We know it's way more nuanced than that. How do we get away from that linear approach and this is something I've learned from you that we have to have our critical thinking hats on. And I find myself as a practitioner, I'm always surprised where I will sometimes default to in one direction and then go, oh, wait, I got to step back. I got to step back and look at the big picture. And it's a constant practice of stepping back and looking at all of the puzzle pieces. Any advice as to how to practice that step back? What's up, biohackers? What if I told you there was a supplement that is helpful for immune health, dental health, skin care, even can help our pets at times. And it has actually been used by many ancient civilizations for a long, long time. I am talking about silver today. It was actually used before the mainstream discovery and acceptance of antibiotics in the early 1900s. Uh, silver was used in hospitals and is still used today. And we do want to be careful about the quality of silver. This is why we love the silver soul technology. It's not ionic. It's actually a true colloidal silver, which is a nanoparticle coated by a silver oxide. So what you really need to remember is that it's more effective and more efficient at lower parts per million. And the silver soul technology that we love is 10 to 33 parts per million versus there's other companies that have up to 3,000 parts per million. So the takeaway more is not always better. And the company that we really, really love to use is Silver Biotics because they have a wide range of products, like I said, for immune-specific, dental-specific, even the pet care, wound care, all of these great options. And the Silver Soul technology has a natural way of targeting invaders without the side effects, so using multiple modes of action on how it targets invaders. It uses the natural elements to kind of trick the body, so to speak, to kickstart the immune system. So especially through the winter, we love using the immune support. So if you want to check out these awesome products, you can head over to silverbiotics.com and make sure you use discount code biohackerbabes at checkout to save some money. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, I mean, certainly this 
what the whole purpose of the FMHP program is that you're in class one and it's amazing to have you in that class because I really just, the way that that all came to be is kind of crazy, just this organic sort of unfolding of my own path, but it just became blatantly obvious. Like we just need a new breed of mental health professional, right? You know, there's, there's a lot of good stuff going on out there with like functional holistic approaches to mental health, but I don't know. There, there was a very clear need for more in that department because like the whole functional medicine paradigm, I think is really seductive, right? This whole idea of like, yeah, well, you know, shotgun all these cool functional tests that your conventional doctor has never heard of. Um, and doesn't want to run. <laughs> and doesn't want to run and seems really resistant and sketched out by, but no, no, no. Like they're doing it all wrong with their silly blood work. That doesn't tell you anything you need to run you know, $500 urine test that doesn't have any shroud of peer-reviewed literature to support its clinical significance, right? And then it's just this like, all right, shotgun all these experimental, not clinically validated tests to then try to make more informed clinical decisions with this point and shoot of like, well, this supplement protocol is going to, you know, fix it all. Um, You know, I got like, obviously, when I shifted from nutrition, fitness into the functional medicine world, I was very enchanted and enamored by all of it. But, you know, the deeper I get, I'm like, man, there's a lot of bullshit, just bad, great marketing, bad science, great paradigms, but low efficacy. Right. And I think it's kind of become a problem to the point. Like, I feel like I hear more bad experiences with functional medicine than good. And this is where like a big part of my strategy with the mental map, as opposed to you know, these experimental stool tests and urine tests and hair tests. And we, our technology measures this, we think we say it does, and we make money off saying it does. And I was like, well, let's like dig into the literature of like, what biomarkers do we have widely available that have an enormous body of evidence to say what they actually mean and the clinical implications of that? Because you can't even really qualify what any of these functional tests mean if you're not contrasting and comparing to, you know, more clinically validated biomarkers, right? And the whole like root cause, I mean, it's as if it's singular. It's like, there's so many input signals from the psyche, the environment, the lifestyle, supplements, medications, you can't ever trace something back to like, well, this is the root cause. And unfortunately, a lot of people get sold into functional medicine of like, well, they go see this specialist and they're like, no, it's definitely like a stealth infection because I pushed on your arm. You know, then they go see this other person and they're like, oh, no, no, it's just all methylation because look, you have this MTHFR snip and they they just get like sold and sucked down these rabbit holes and spin around and kind of chewed up and spit out. And so I'm trying to like, all right, let's let's zoom back out and focus more on objectively assessing the physiology and biochemistry using established biomarkers, using a more holistic bio-individualized approach that's also catering to the learning style and the psychological preferences of the client or the patient or whatever. And at least then we have the objectivity with the data to see what really is, is working or not. Um, but yeah, you know, it's one of those, if, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I think there's just like much of that in the functional medicine space. And uh, I think as an industry, we're going to have to do a lot better if we ever really want to like accomplish the mission that we all say we want, which is helping public health and American health or worldwide health or, or whatever, because mm-hmm. we're such a small wild West entrepreneurial industry. There's not enough structure. There's not enough established efficacy or validity. So 
you know, I think that's the opportunity though. And that excites me, right? Um, I think we can do a lot better in this industry. Yeah. I will say like my personal journey, you know, when I was really sick in my twenties, people were like, oh, well, like what was the root cause of your fatigue? Right. And I'm like, um, okay, let's see. HPA axis dysfunction, mercury toxicity, uh, gut issues, um, living in a sympathetic state all day long, sleep deprived, drinking alcohol, circadian rhythm dysfunction, blood sugar dysregulation. Like I could keep going. And it was like, people always like, oh, what was the one cause of your fatigue? And I'm like, it's just, it was, I mean, it was a lot of lifestyle issues really that kind of led to these other issues. But, and I went down the rabbit hole of going to this practitioner said it was this, and this one said it was this. And I spent a lot of money going down that rabbit hole. And a a lot of people are. And so you're right. I'm starting to hear some nightmare stories too, of people saying, I did the functional medicine thing. It didn't work. I spent thousands of dollars. It didn't work. So yeah, I think we have some work to do in this realm to change the name of the game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, I don't know. It's kind of trippy because like I see what, what, you know, the conventional model and the powers that be see what they're doing. I see what we're doing. It's like, well, the truth is in the middle and there is a lot of really good work being done to kind of close that gap. Like, you know, looking at like a lot of the research that's coming out, I think we live in really uh, exciting time. Like, you know, you look at how much psychedelic research is just coming out every day now. Every day there's new studies, new papers coming out or gut brain access or so there's a lot of really, really exciting research that's being done that I, I think will kind of continue closing the gap of like the archaic, crusty, myopic, allopathic conventional model versus like woo-woo, super early adopter. Is that even scientifically validated, you know, kind of on the edge of sanity, you know, with some of the holistic stuff. Um, I don't know, but, but again, I mean, we're dealing with human health, so we have to stay kind of grounded in evidence and truth and logic and and data to some degree. Like, yes, I'm a very esoteric guy, but like, you know, like keep your head in the clouds, but keep your feet on the ground at the same time. Yeah. You can have both. Yeah. 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 So with our feet on the ground, what about nutrition? Where do we start there? And it's a very broad question. You know, it is, but, uh, you know, I've been thinking more about that. I feel like I need to put out some like content because I keep getting people asking. I was like, okay, nutrition for mental health. And it's like, well, nutrition for mental health, nutrition for health in general doesn't make a difference, right? Same, same. And it's crazy how I know you two can appreciate this. Of Like nutrition has just gone off the rails, right? Like what is happening anymore? When when my career started, uh, you know, the cool kids that were like sciencey bros, they were all about keto. And, you know, look at what keto has become over the past like decade. But then now like that wasn't enough. Now it's like, okay, plant-based and vegan. I still don't know the difference, you know, carnivore and primal don't know the difference there either. Don't care. (laughs) And just, oh my gosh, you know, the, the way that the internet like glorifies these narcissistic sociopaths, you know, with a million or 2 million follower, you know, I won't, I won't say any names, but we all know a few of these people. And all the while, it, it, people looking for that silver bullet diet, right? And it just doesn't even make sense. You know, whole foods, real food from the earth, minimally processed, nutrient dense, well, you know, diversity matters a lot. But why are we getting so, I don't know, exclusive with the food groups? It has to be all plants or it has to be all like placenta blood. I'm like, why? Why? Um, so everybody has to find like what works for them and that takes nutritional knowledge and nutritional skill. 
And in my humble opinion, anybody that's just pushing this sort of like restrictive, you know, blanket diet, whether it's, you know, you have to do autoimmune paleo or anti-mold diet or primal, I don't know if they're, if they're pushing like a one size fits all that completely disintegrates any validity to the, to the conversation. We, we all have highly unique nutritional needs and preferences and, you know, the best diet is going to be what you can adhere to long-term that keeps you in a good place with your health, mentally, psychologically, physically, and everything in between. So to me, there's no substitute for the, the nutritional coaching journey, you know, that I know the three of us are all very keen on to helping educate our clients and patients on how to make better nutritional decisions and, and create healthier behaviors with nutrition. But yeah, I could, I could tear apart a lot of these weird diet trends. <laughs> the violent oh, yeah. camps, the dogmatic food wars. Yeah. I love that you said nutritional coaching journey. Cause it is, there is a lot of coaching involved because it's not just what you're eating, but how you're eating it. And I'm finding even more opportunity there where people are slamming healthy foods and dark leafy greens, which we could get into the importance of dark leafy greens for mental health. But you know, if you're not chewing and digesting and absorbing why are you putting so much weight and effort into being so healthy? I I, mm -hmm. I see people that come and they're like on edge. They're, they're so healthy. Yeah. Healthy it, in quotations. There's like so many aspects that just things you'll appreciate this. Cause so I'm working on module five right now, right. For the, the program, which is the gut brain axis. I don't know when I'm going to be done with this program. It's just, it keeps getting bigger. So just the other day, like right now I'm working on, on module five and I'm, I'm creating some slides and content around like the incretin hormones in your gut, right? GIP, GLP-1. So this is kind of a fun pearl that what you just say, you, you mentioned chewing, which is what triggered this whole thought process. Cause like one of the things I really like to do is I, I like to look at pharmaceutical research to see what is big pharma doing? Cause they have the rigorous research efficacy model to really validate like what actually works with improving clinical outcomes, period, right? And if we can look at pharmaceutical research to see, you know, what mechanisms, what pathways yield better clinical outcomes, I always then like to look at that and go, all right, how can we use that same knowledge in science, but apply it holistically and, and functionally? So like with neurodegeneration and Alzheimer's being sixth leading cause of death, Parkinson's being pretty high up there, um, and just more and more neurodegeneration, which is really just chronic neuroinflammation period. And I don't, I don't love that everybody's going crazy with the whole like type three diabetes thing. I think that's a little, that's part of it, but it's a little bit misleading by itself. But so like with GLP one, you know, it's already glucagon, like peptide one and cretin hormone, peptide hormone made in the intestinal tract in, in response to food, you eat food. It stimulates all these different hunger hormones and, and metabolic hormones, GLP-1 being like the coolest of all of them. And so, you know, this hormone, it, it's beta cell preserving and, and nourishing. It helps improve the mass of beta cells. It preserves insulin status, it improves insulin signaling and sensitivity, it increases glucose disposal. It's anti-inflammatory. It's neuroprotective. Like GLP-1 is, is an amazing hormone. And we know from the pharmaceutical research that like GLP-1 receptor agonist drugs, you know, drugs that mimic the effect of naturally produced GLP-1, you know, they're already established as a treatment for diabetes. 
but now they're being used as a treatment for neurodegeneration because of all these really cool uh, therapeutic effects it has in the brain. So there's the GLP-1 agonists and then DDP-4 inhibitors. Either way, it's just all about enhancing the metabolic effect of this GLP-1 hormone that's naturally made in our gut every time we eat. And so I look at that and it's like, wow, you know, they're using these really cool drugs that enhance that mechanism for neurodegeneration and mental illness and metabolic syndrome and diabetes. And then if we like reverse engineer that to, okay, well, isn't like the greatest most involved to teach people how not to need it. So how could we like naturally enhance GLP-1 signaling so we don't have to be reliant on a drug when we're 90 years old and symptomatic and degenerated? It's like, okay, chewing your food more slowly dramatically increases GLP-1 secretion and signaling or bitter foods or more fiber and protein. Like if you eat a Pop-Tart, you're not going to get the same GLP-1 and cretin response that you are going to get from eating like broccoli and steak with, you know, some tea or something like that. Right. So, I mean, that's just like a random example though of like, okay, but if it's established in the pharmaceutical research, maybe what like lifestyle and dietary lessons can we extrapolate from that? You know, and when people are like unconsciously scrolling and slamming, you know, processed carbohydrate, you know, and then being given a GLP one drug, I'm just like, all right, well, there's a natural solution here that, you know, we could talk about. So Mm -hmm. yeah, Yeah. if you can get people on board with doing the harder work, I do believe there are some people that probably really need those drugs. If your beta cells are really compromised, same with, you know, some people really do need cholesterol medication and statins, but uh, everyone is that, is that number one on the list? Well, what kills me is the, like the, the sociology going on, uh, you know, so chiefs are about to play in the super bowl. Don't know if you two go you Eagles notice. Ah. <laughs> I'm in Philadelphia and I'm about to witness some chaos, but I am rooting for the chiefs yeah. for you. All right, my all right. <laughs> well, I mean, my, hu- my husband's yeah. from the Philly area, so he's an Eagles fan. So I, and my Ravens are obviously out. So yeah, let's go sure Eagles are. for now. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. We can still be friends, but um, <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Cause like, I, I feel like wa- watching the chiefs is my closest thing to watching like mainstream media. And so I see like all the commercials while I'm watching the chiefs games and stuff and just, you know, processed food, pharma commercial processed food, uh, vaccine propaganda, all this stuff. So that's kind of my thing is like, I don't have an issue with like, pharmaceuticals innately of like, I think pharmaceuticals are amazing and awesome, but it's the propaganda. It's the fact that we're, you know, pushing this metabolic disease promoting lifestyle so heavily at people. And we're making like health information hard to find, hard to get at. Um, I mean, everything that's been going on with the COVID stuff and, you know, the project Veritas stuff that's been coming out and this, like it, it's gotten, to an absolutely insane place. Right. And it makes like logical conversations. Like, I don't know, maybe, maybe instead of just like waiting till you have neurodegeneration to take that GLP one drug, like maybe you should just eat real food and chew slower. Right. But I, that's my problem with it is when the powers that be the public health system is pushing and promoting that, which is very disease promoting and then turn around and sell you the drug. Right. So that's that's where there's a moral, you know, ethical issue going on at a at a global populist level that is messed up. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, really squashing critical thinking. 
Yeah. Although I think this is an interesting time. I mean, Brendan, you said it's a really exciting time to be alive with all the science that's coming out. It's really exciting. But I was at this mastermind event a couple of weeks ago. Really, really interesting, diverse group of people, somewhat in healthcare, some that worked in the insurance route, big pharma, holistic practitioners, NDs, MDs, really good mix of people. But um, someone stood up and they said, things are changing. They said, my daughter and son, they're both, I think they were like 18 and 20. He said, they don't go to the doctor and none of their friends are going to the doctor. Actually, I'm sorry. I think they were a couple of years older. They were in college. And they said, when they have anything going on, they talk to each other. They talk to their community and they ask around, what else can I be doing? They're not just going and I mean, obviously at that age, it's a little young to be doing medication, but I think with that mindset, it's going to be so different in the next 20, 30 years of what we see mm-hmm. versus maybe the people now that see that drug commercial and then they do go ask for it. I thought that was interesting to hear. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, you know, some kind of sociological awakening going on there. There's definitely this kind of rising like anti-pharmaceutical sentiment and everything. And, you know, obviously there's, we're always going to want and need more, uh, you know, fountain of youth drugs with, with big pharma, but it's just that, that sort of power struggle, that, um, ideology, that attitude towards it. it, there is a lot of shifting going on there. And it's really interesting how like the powers that be, they just keep gripping tighter and tighter, right? It's like, you guys aren't listening. Like we don't like what you're doing, but you just keep brought to you by Pfizer. Like, don't ask questions. We'll censor you, you know? And we don't like that, but it is good to at least like more and more people are like, oh, I don't want to do it that way. And, and you know, more group think. Right. So, right. I guess we'll right. see. And, that, and that's where like, you know, I think um, like all three of us here, we're really into the psychedelic movement. And I think that's a really powerful adjuvant to this whole kind of collective awakening, because I think to me, that's one of the most exciting areas of you know, what do you call that? Is that holistic? Is that pharma? Well, you know, they're cranking out synthetic psilocybin, doing clinical trials on that. And all of, there's that power struggle. Um, be either way, it's it's coming. And I think that'll really contribute to um, the awakening. Yeah, I don't want to sound too like cliche, but, you know, it's like, well, it is. It's people are kind of waking up and it, it is shifting. But the, yeah. Oh, yeah. the model is shifting to keep their power through that, though. You know, we can change our attitude and ideology, but they're not giving up any of their power. They're just shifting their business model. Like, no, no, we, yeah, we're for psychedelics. We're going to monetize it because we'll just make synthetic and, you know, you can buy it from us. So that way they don't, you know, lose their bottom line or anything through that transition. Well, if there's a financial opportunity, then we'll find it. And it's interesting because it really does, it is pervasive into the narrative. And even if things are shifting, I feel like the big question is when we have more access to these, we'll just call them medicines, how will we approach it? Are we still going to approach it as a magic bullet solution or are we still, or are we going to keep moving towards questioning the behavioral aspects Mm -hmm. and changes that we really need to be doing? Because you can't just take a psychedelic and your life is going to change. Same thing with the, the drugs and medications, same thing with supplements and nutraceuticals. Would you agree with that? Like just taking some nutraceuticals that are helpful for mental health. If you are not getting outside, getting sunshine and moving, you know, is there any amount of zinc, magnesium, B vitamins you can take if you're not doing those things that will help? Yeah, no, I mean, the, it's, it's hard to even say what's going on. Cause like, 
everything's so subjective now and and our algorithms are programmed to confirm what we already believe kind of thing so i i don't even know what like the masses believe or what they're but it kind of seems like there's still way too much unconscious consumerism kind of human battery syndrome pill for the ill what's the pill that you're recommending now that seems like that's still like the majority the masses but there definitely is this kind of growing demographic of like we're thinking we're thinking for ourselves we're questioning a little bit we're looking at some of these other aspects of the conversation um but yeah to your point i mean just the idea of taking a pill to fix a lifestyle and environmental induced problem just will never make sense right and i always think it's funny how like with conventional doctors that take the hippocratic oath and it's like i'm pretty sure hippocrates hates conventional medicine right like he's probably like up in heaven or you know the fifth dimension or whatever and he's like you guys didn't listen to a damn thing i i said like walking is man's best medicine or all disease begins in the gut or if you know you, you before treating a patient ask him if he is willing to give up what made him sick like y'all y'all are not listening to any of that right <laughs> you know, so yeah it's kind of funny <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's like we yeah. treat it as art, but it's advice. It's very clear, direct advice. Very tangible, very literal. I don't think he was beating around the bush. No. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh, that's <laughs> hilarious. I- I'm curious about the genetic side of things. I would love to hear more about your opinion. Lauren has told me a little bit about like what you've talked about in your class, but can you share your thoughts on that? I mean, do you think it's helpful for people to be running an initial genetic test just to get like a foundation of maybe what they should watch out for. I think I I know we all agree that the tests out there that are doing the genetic test and then saying buy these 12 supplements, that is not the way to go without looking at your physiology, which is frightening to me, frightening. Um, So I think, I mean, there's like a spectrum, right? We just get the the results and then we analyze and say, okay, what's going to turn these genes on and off? And then the other side of the spectrum where I said, they're selling you a bucket of supplements. What do you think is the answer? And adding to that, confirming a narrative that then kind of spirals people, for example, I have MTHFR, oh my gosh. (laughs) And I can't think anything other than that. Yeah. Um, I think like at like, do I think that genetic-based medicine is the future of medicine? Absolutely. Do I think that genetic research and genetic testing is far enough along that we can really be responsibly or efficaciously using it in clinical practice right now? Not really, to be honest. Um, I I personally think it's a little bit more distracting and misleading than helpful. Um, And it's not just like what functional people are doing with it, but also, I mean, like when I first got exposed to MTHFR, that was, you know, my ex-fiance was really sick and I was trying to figure out what the hell's wrong with her, right? You know, I was trying to help her. And so the doctor ran a a basic blood panel. It all looks normal. Nothing wrong with you. Couldn't find anything, but you did test positive for this MTHFR thing. I'm like, well, what's this MTHFR thing? Right. And so what's interesting is like conventional medicine, because MTHFR as a gene and a enzyme protein, it's one of the most well-studied, you know, genetic SNPs and, and mutations that, that there is. And there's only, you know, like a handful of genetic mutations that are like really, really well studied and determined as being, you know, clinically relevant, validated. Um, And with MTHFR, there's like over 14 clinically relevant 
single nucleotide polymorphisms. And yet we only ever really talk about the two, the 1298 and the 677. And what's kind of weird is like conventional medicine has already started like regularly screening for MTHFR, only looking at the 1298 and 677. They're not looking at the other 12 clinically relevant variations of that gene. And if somebody tests positive, like heterozygous, homozygous for e either one, doesn't really matter. They'll pretty much immediately jump to prescribing a compound in nutraceutical that has like 15 milligrams methylfolate, 15 milligrams methylcobalamin, and maybe some D3 and NAC. And to put that in perspective, like most clinical grade multivitamins have like 400 micrograms of methylfolate in methylcobalamin. So we're talking like 15 to 30 times the normal like therapeutic dose of those nutrients. And that's prescribed based on the gene, not based on the physiology. Like they're not, they're not measuring methylation biomarkers like homocysteine to say like, oh, well, you have homocysteinuria. And so to bring that down, we're going to use high dose B12, B9. No, they're just like, well, based on this genetic predisposition, we're just going to go ahead and kind of like prophylactically give you insanely high megadoses of these nutraceuticals, which then you, you dig into some of the research on like folate supplementation. It could be very helpful, or if somebody's already inflamed, it could exacerbate the inflammatory process. Right. And there's science literature that, that says that, and that's MTHFR, you know, that's one of the best studied, you know, genes that there really is. So then you factor in, you know, these thousands of other SNPs and it's like, well, the human genome, we all have about 20,000 genes approximately, and there's over like 600 million SNPs that have been identified through genomic research so far. And it's estimated that every single one of us, we have about 5 million SNPs within our unique genome. All the while, we're all like 99.98% genetically identical. So my question based on that is if you go run whatever genetic test, how many SNPs is it looking for? you know, 200, 2000, cause you have like 6 million SNPs in your, in your genome. And then my question is like, okay, so you, you test for, let's say 2000 SNPs. Our, our test is the most comprehensive. We look at 2000 SNPs. That's why our test is better and you should buy it. And then all the while it's like, so what do you do with that information? How do those cherry picked 2000 out of 5 million SNPs that you have How's that influencing your current state of physiology? Are you even measuring your current state of physiology? And like, how could we possibly really cater nutrition recommendations, supplement recommendations? How could we cater anything based on, you're looking at like this much of their genome, this much of their genetic makeup. And we don't know how that's being expressed. Like, we don't know what genes are being turned on or turned off. And like, I was actually in a meeting maybe like a year ago with some owners of labs. And what we were talking about was the idea of developing a new test that looks at global DNA methylation because with methylation, you know, methylation is kind of the process by which we, we turn off a gene. You know, if we methylate a gene, we're like silencing it versus if we stick an acetyl group on it, it, it activates and sort of speeds up the expression of that gene. And so, you know, we were talking about the idea, it was like, you know, two different lab owners, another researcher, and then me, because the idea was like, well, it doesn't really matter the SNPs, because what we really care about is how much of your DNA is really methylated, because that actually is a relatively 
it's so much more um, macro. It, it's such a macro marker of like epigenetic health in general. But the idea is, you know, how much of your total genome is is methylated, as in kind of being silenced. And then, of course, I mean, even if we were able to create a test like that, which it's possible, but that project fell through. But then what does that mean? We would have to establish the clinical significance of, well, you know, you're at 70% global methylation status, right? So all of that to say, I just really don't think genetic testing, I don't know. I, I think the only thing that we could really use it for is maybe reinforcing certain like holistic coaching concepts of like, oh, well, based on some of your SNPs, you might really benefit from spending more time in sunlight. And it's like, well, I mean, if that reinforces a healthy behavior, but I think the data itself is nearly meaningless in clinical practice. So yeah, yeah. and I think it depends stance. on the the personality too. I mean, you could have some clients that that really creates a fear narrative where some people are excited and want to look at all the data and could be really motivating something. I know for myself, I, I appreciate that. I know about my ApoE 3, 4. Mm-hmm. I know that sleep is really important to me. And so I put a lot of emphasis and effort into that, but for some people, it could just create this fear narrative where they, they become kind of paralyzed and can't live their lives and are not choosing healthier behaviors, or maybe they're just stuck in this fight or flight stress response. So I think, again, meeting the client where they're at, understanding the whole picture and where the biggest opportunities are, I think is probably the best path forward, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's almost like, I mean, you know, and I, I say that a lot in the program of like, I think almost any lab test or, or data point, you know, we as the coach or practitioner or doctor or whatever, you know, we are, we can use any data point to create a narrative that reinforces healthy behaviors, or we could use any data point to create a narrative that's like fear mongering and and orthorexia inducing. I just recently with one of my longer term clients, it literally got to the point that we had to cut her off of lab testing. You know, lab testing is supposed to be my tool to help guide the client towards a better quality of life. But it was one of those situations she had kind of like taken my tool out of my hands and she was using my tool to hurt herself and kind of self-sabotage by, you know, well, what's wrong with me now? Let me run this test to find another thing wrong with me. And it, it, you know, a a very like self kind of self-harming yeah way. So it, it just got to the point like, all right, we need to cut you off of lab testing and really just focus on, you know, the, the psychology and the behaviors and the belief systems around like, why do you feel you have to relentlessly look for things wrong with you all the time. Like, what is that rooted in? Right. Cause maybe that's the greatest healing opportunity that's currently on the table. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That sounds like a trip to Costa Rica worth doing. <laughs> yeah, actually she just did, that. she just did psilocybin for the first time like a week oh, or really? two ago. So, and I, I heard it was a positive experience and oh. yeah, maybe that'll set her soul free. I don't know. I guess we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I had an interesting experience uh, just like a month ago with Wachuma. And um, a lot of what you have said today is like resonated with what I experienced down there. And I think it can be really eye opening for a lot of people. So that's exciting. Yeah. Something else you said that I wanted to ask you about. Shoot. Now I just forgot. Lauren, did you have testing, lab testing? I was just going to jump in and say it pains me, but we do have to start to wrap up. It's uh, just oh, terrible. Yes. Oh, gosh. We spent 10 hours here. But 
anything on the behavioral lifestyle side that you would say really, maybe and just for you, because I know it's a different puzzle for everyone, but for you really kind of moves the needle forward directly with mental health for you? You know, there's this quote that I really like, and I don't think this will be verbatim, but it's basically to the effect of a man should not strive for attentionless state, but rather a great cause that's worthy of his character. And essentially what that means to me is like, I think these days we're kind of sold this narrative, especially through social media. That's like, we're never supposed to feel sad or bad or never have a symptom. Like there's always a root cause for why you feel that way. And let's create all these narratives that are very self-indulgent and, you know, but like we were talking about before, I mean, we evolved struggling to survive and now we live in a time where making it to the next day is really not as hard as it used to be. You know, we're not running from saber tooth tigers or having to hunt down our food or, you know, it's really not that hard to see another day. So we're just kind of contemplating our own existence and sentience. So, you know, I think finding and cultivating a sense of purpose is absolutely essential for mental health. You could have squeaky clean physiology, but if you have no sense of purpose and no role that you play on this planet, then you're probably going to feel miserable and empty. Um, I think the secret to a life well-lived is serving others more than serving yourself. And I think the self-healing movement has gotten out of control where it's all about the self. You know, it's it's self-healing, not collective healing. It's all about me, 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 right? It just feels very self-indulgent. And then all the while when psychological research like very clearly says we need a combination of pleasure seeking pleasure seeking is part of what we need to feel healthy and happy so not all pleasure seeking is bad like if it's going off the rails and you're an addict and making self-destructive behavioral choices that's one thing but a little bit of pleasure seeking is fine like if it's healthy it's conscious and it's under control but also the pursuit of self-actualization and that's that's a spiritual journey uh journey of the self but the struggle is good you know we we need adversity we we need struggle it's creating a sense of meaning in adversity that actually propels the human organism forward and finally <laughs> i think like taming the ego is is kind of like step one in all of this right you know we've all heard the og alan watts of you know, the ego is a really bad master, but it's, it can be a really powerful servant. If we make the ego a, a servant to the higher self, and I always kind of like to think about the human experience from like an evolutionary biology perspective, because we overhumanize everything. We're just so self-indulgent and immature as a species. And we're just like, oh, we're so special as humans. And it's like, oh, there's a lot of arguments we could make against that. But we just overhumanize everything in, in such a self-indulgent manner. And to me, you know, that's a reflection of an, an ego that has gotten out of control at a collective species level. Because like when you really think about it, to me, I think, you know, the human ego, if any kind of biological organism, it could be a bacterium, it could be a fungi, it could be a parasite, it could be a dog, it doesn't matter. But if there wasn't sort of this like hardwired innate mechanism of self-interest, you know, that organism wouldn't survive the Darwinistic model of you know, continuity, right? Like there has to be some sort of self-interested, like I have to look out for number one, I have to hoard the resources, I have to do what's in my best interest, because otherwise we wouldn't survive. We wouldn't, we wouldn't pursue things that help us survive and be healthy. 
or then contribute our gene pool and reproduce so that our, our lineage continues. We contribute our gene pool to the future of humanity. So I kind of like to look at that a little bit of like the ego is just trying to get you to survive and contribute your gene pool. We can romanticize it all we want and think we're so special, but I think we have to recognize like we have the opportunity to kind of tame the ego and tap into the higher self and more look at like, okay, we have this rare opportunity that we can co-create with one another. And like with microbiology, you don't see bacteria just doing their own thing of like, I'm a little independent bacterium and it's all about me. So I'm going to go do me over here and you all can bend over to my reality. No, bacteria work together as, as a colony. You know, it's, it's about the welfare of the collective, not the welfare of the individual. And I think we've just really lost that as humans. So I don't know, maybe just some like philosophical musings to wrap things up. No, well said. I think um, hopefully things are changing in that realm. I think there's more of that community focus and hopefully we keep going that direction. Um, I also appreciate what you said about experiencing like different emotions. Like it's okay to not just be this like happy, optimistic person 24 seven. I think people have forgotten that. And I think to think of different emotions, not as good or bad, like, right. People kind of bucket like anger and sadness and grief and frustration, like in this like bad bucket. And it's like, they're all just part of the human experience. Right. So mm-hmm. getting rid of that good, bad emotion and life. Ebbs and flows. We don't have light. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Beautiful. Absolutely. Brendan, I'm curious, is there anything else you want to share about your next program? I know definitely the start date and if there's anything else you want people to know. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, no, the FMHP program, we're wrapping up enrollment for class two right now. So that starts uh, March 1st, 2023, and then we'll start class three, September 1st, 2023. Um, But yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of that program. I mean, it's shaping up to be, I mean, I'm on, I'm building module five and we're already like over 100 hours deep. So I think by the time we get through module 20, it'll be like 300 plus hours probably. Um, it might end up being like a two to three year program when all is said and done. I'm not sure yet, but I, I don't know. Uh, this might, I'm hesitant to say it, but I feel like it's already kind of like the premier functional medicine for mental health program. Um, so I think it's just going to keep going. And I, I think the practitioners we have in the program in between class one and class two, that's the best part, right? Cause I'm just one guy and doing whatever the heck I'm doing, but the people that the program is attracting and like what they're doing. So it's really exciting to think about what FMHP is going to be. I, I think it's already becoming a very well-respected, you know, credential and, and one that I think we need a lot more of. So I'm excited to keep going with it. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. And who is it Thank for? You. Any prerequisites that people need to know about? You know, um, I don't require any specific uh, prerequisite. It definitely is not entry level. And so we it is an application process. You have to apply and then get selected. Technically, I mean, we have a few people in the program that had no previous credentials or experience, but really like a strong foundation of physiology, biochemistry, maybe some coaching experience, some sort of health professional experiences ideal. So a lot of our uh, a lot of our students are graduates of other programs like IIN or Precision Nutrition, FDN, NTP, IHP, A4M, IFM. Um, we have, it's it's a very eclectic group. Um, we're attracting a lot of psychotherapists, which I love, 
Although I will say it seems like the psychotherapists don't have the same foundation of like physiology and biochemistry. So that, that tends to be where they struggle a little bit, but I just, my best recommendation, I mean, health professional experience, ideally, but strong understanding of just physiology, biochemistry, maybe some psychology. Uh, but more than anything, I'm looking for like the aptitude to learn the desire to learn and the desire to serve. Like that's more important than, than any credential really. Amazing. And you're and an incredible instructor. So thank you. We learn, we learn as we go. But yeah, I, I would second that the biochemistry, some kind of experience and understanding there is very helpful because uh, we barely scratch the surface on biomarkers, but you are beyond comprehensive in the program. Thank you. I appreciate that feedback from you. It means a lot. Amazing. Well, I can't wait to learn more from both of you. This was awesome. Um, Brendan, I think to wrap things up, I know you've already given our audience some amazing tips and wisdom, but maybe just like one thing that they can start doing today to optimize their health. Uh, I mean, you know, honestly, like go walk outside in nature. Like I've gotten to the point, I kid you not, uh, you know, I know we circulate a lot of the kind of common sense things on social media, but like it never gets old, right? I mean, we we need the same things as humans now that we did 200,000 years ago, but literally the thing that for me, being somebody previously diagnosed and with my previous health struggles, or even like I said, having some more recent mental health struggles, I kind of like, oh gosh, like I'm still capable of going to dark places. I thought I was past that, right? But for me, like going and walking outside is literally the best. You know, I would say my daily nature walks, which I'm about to go do right now, just walking in nature, getting that sunshine whether we want to call it forest bathing or walking meditation or whatever, I don't care. But like that to me is the best medicine for me. It's, it's better than my workouts. It's better than my yoga or my running or my lifting or my nutrition or my sleep. That is what keeps me sane above all else. So uh, maybe unplug and, and go for a walk in nature and kind of reconnect with like the real world and uh, see where that gets you. See what comes up, you know? <laughs> The real world, like the MTV show? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Not, tell me you're a 90s kid without telling me you're a 90s kid. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. Well, I'm definitely going to get out for a walk today. Thank you for that beautiful reminder. I love that. Yeah, you're welcome. You're you welcome. Well. Yes. Yeah. Um, Thank you both so much for having me, though. Like, the, I, I love talking to you, too. And uh, I hope we get to hang out at a conference sometime this year. I know. That's all I ever want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Oh. I hope we can get something on the calendar. Great. Well, and for everyone listening, definitely check out the show notes for today's episode. We will put Brendan's website, Facebook, Instagram. You're rocking the Instagram. We were talking about that before we hit record. So good. Um, And LinkedIn. So that'll all be in the show notes for today and more about the program. So awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you both. Such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thanks to everyone for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Hey, biohackers, thank you so much for staying until the end. And because you did, we have a very exciting announcement. For the next 90 days, we are giving free access to our seven-day Biohacker Babes Challenge. Each day includes a quick nutrition video, workout of the day, and actionables to keep you on track as we move further away from the new year. This is a great time to reinvest in your resolutions and bring a friend along for the ride. The offer will only be available for these 90 days or until the end of April. To access this challenge for free and to invite a friend, scroll down to the show notes and click the link. We will make sure you can't miss it. Happy biohacking. 
love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with your physician or health care professional.